Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this episode is part of our World in 30 Minutes mini-series on the end of the world. This is the place where we talk about how the global order, which has defined the world for the last few decades, is gradually crumbling, falling apart, being challenged, bursting at the seams, or maybe even being reinvented as something else. This week, I am joined by Edward Lutvak. Edward Lutvak is a legend amongst military strategists. He has written uh, a whole series of books starting... um, when was it first published? With Kudeta uh, several decades ago, which has been reissued, but has written about the grand strategies of lots of different empires um, and uh, has not been afraid to ask very difficult questions of the conventional wisdom and to challenge it in all sorts of uh, different ways over the years. He's also author of some of the, the big buzzwords which have come to define our age, like geoeconomics was something which uh, was developed uh, a couple of decades ago, just after the end of the Cold War, in one of uh, Professor Litwack's articles. So, Edward Litwack, um, why don't we start with the, the big question uh, behind this podcast, what actually is the, the liberal order in the real world? Uh, does it exist? Is it collapsing? Well, the liberal order was originally a British invention. It was invented by theory and practice in Victorian England. And I suppose the turning point was John Stuart Mill one day asking whether the government should do nothing if a railway company smashes its passengers to smithereens. I mean, in other words, uh, he was saying, okay, free market, free economy, free society is what we all want, but there is a role for government. And what is that role? Well, it is to block natural economic phenomena when they really hurt people. The national economic phenomenon was for the railway companies to compete uh, on speed. And in the mid-19th century, I suppose the technology was not entirely perfect. And by going faster and faster, they were having more accidents, killing people. And John Stuart Mill said, we all want freedom in every respect. However, uh, you better put a speed limit on the way railways operate. We don't want to lose too many people killed. That's how it all begins. And it then evolves merrily along until suddenly, uh, I would say in the mid-1970s, a a silent, I mean, it's a strange concept, but a a silent ideology emerges. And this ideology says that globalization is part of the liberal order. In other words, if you are sitting merrily along somewhere in the Midlands or in Pittsburgh or somewhere working efficiently, producing things that your fellow citizens buy, you should be instantly willing to give up your job, your activity, your entire profession, perhaps the entire industry, because somebody somewhere is producing it much cheaper, even though that may be due to things like government subsidies, even though it could be that you are the target of somebody else's geoeconomic offensive, a deliberate intention of grabbing market share by selling under cost. And these phenomena start in the 1970s, 
Uh, one day, the Republic of Korea that steadfastly refuses to import anything that it doesn't absolutely need, blocks the importation of everything, including American products, that is products from the country that was protecting South Korea. South Koreans decide to seize the world shipbuilding industry with huge subsidies, big loans to the conglomerates, and then undercut everybody else by making ships. Now, suddenly the liberal order defined by John Stuart Mill, which is that everything is free, everything is wonderful, but the state is there ready to intervene if the free market hurts people really badly. This was suspended. Suddenly, it was Davos. It was Davos. Globalization all the time, everywhere, at all costs, regardless of. And this suddenly undermined the actual basis of the liberal order, whereby people could be liberal, could be relaxed, and could be welcoming of change, so long as they were shielded from these sudden Arctic storms that would freeze them to death. This rival ideology but it masquerades as merely modern liberalism, but is directly opposed to it, keeps becoming more and more influential. And in fact, Davos, the Davos man becomes the exemplary figure. And uh, without paying attention to details of how they got to Davos, how they left Davos, what kind of proclamations they were making. And this continues on until the inevitable political revolt. Um, about 15 years ago, I wrote some article about economic transformation in which I said this is preparing the way for fascism, of course, because what you're doing is you're totally under. And then something else happened on top of this completely illiberal, if I, you know, again, John Stuart Mill attitude to globalization. We now have something else, which is called fanatical environmentalism. You are digging coal in Pennsylvania. You know you're getting older. Most miners are pretty old. You know that actually natural gas is becoming cheaper and cheaper. And therefore, you anticipate, you, you anticipate and indeed welcome the fact that your son will now be a coal miner. Suddenly, under the guise of liberalism, we have a phenomenon like the recent President Obama in Washington sitting down and artfully writing decrees, because he couldn't get laws passed by Congress, decrees to undermine the coal industry, while saying publicly, oh, you know, coal is declining, as if it was a natural phenomenon, event inevitable, which indeed it is declining. Instead of being content to allow it to decline, he writes decrees making it impossible for coal mines to operate. They are declining, they're operating less and less, but he writes decrees to block them and prevent them. That is indeed, a, this played a big role, of course, in the presidential campaign. Now, the people who wrote these decrees think of themselves as liberal, because in the name of, of absolute environmentalism, to stop the coal industry is somehow liberal without any concern whatever for the fact that the, the miner who loses his job because the coal mine shuts down also loses all his possessions because what he possesses is his house. And the value of a house in a coal mining town in West Virginia, when the mine is closed down, is near zero. You cannot sell it at all. You can't rent it, you can't sell it, it's worthless. So the coal miner loses his job because of the liberal President Obama's liberalism, quote unquote, and then he also loses all the small wealth he has, which is his house. He now becomes destitute and unemployed. And what does the liberal 
offer him? What program do they offer him? Oh, there's some there's suggestions like why be a coal miner? Why don't you become a fashion designer? Why don't you go into foreign exchange, you know, and things of that sort? No, in other words, government suddenly under the guise of environmental liberalism acts in this way to immiserate part of the population and proceeds to do nothing else to compensate it in any way. And then people are surprised by the outcome. They shouldn't be. So you think that the liberal order was perverted by neoliberalism and environmentalism and that what we're seeing now is not the collapse of the liberal order but the collapse of a of a kind of post-cold war moment where you had these different isms taking the becoming a kind of idea a, a, a new ideology where this is a case of subversion and there is an element of intellectual corruption the people who gathered at davos uh, they gathered Davos every year to celebrate this completely different interpretation of liberalism, which involves globalization at all costs, everywhere, all the time, regardless of. They are the direct beneficiaries of the system because they actually are operating. Well, I suppose they would say that they would say that it's not at all costs because you, your environmental example is, in fact, you know, they would say that that is an attempt to mitigate some of the challenges of globalization and to, to channel it and to. Yeah, the uh, on the issue of globalization, which is uh, the people who advocated are also the direct beneficiaries of it. In regard to environmentalism, I really don't think there's anybody around who says that the John Stuart Mill rule doesn't apply to the environment. It sure does. If if you uh, it's not part of the liberal orders, John Stuart Mill would have understood it to have a some factories spewing out. Uh, smoke right next to where people live and their children running a schoolyard. So the use of state power to protect the environment, to mitigate the consequences of economic activity, uh, this is a thing that goes back a long, long time. And uh, it is definitely, was definitely part of the liberal order. The same principle, railway companies shouldn't be allowed to kill passengers. What happens is that suddenly you have a powerful interest groups, very powerful interest groups that appropriate themselves of this perfectly valid function and then drive it to extremes. Once, let's say the Sierra Club in California. The Sierra Club in California is an environmental group. It's a non-government organization full of wonderful people with a budget in excess of $100 million and which does frantic, relentless, and very successful fundraising. Now, as they do their fundraising, they have to find targets in order to generate the indignation that will cause people to spring and write checks for them. And that is how it happened that once the coal industry, when Obama wrote those decrees that uh, very skillfully basically killed off the coal industry without any law to allow him to do so, Immediately, Sierra Club sends out a message to all its huge number of, of funders saying, we've killed the coal industry, now we're going to do the gas industry. Now, as it happens, in the present moment in China and India, they're continuing to build coal power stations. And if it's a choice between gas and coal, we all know that the environmental impact of gas is very much less, very much less. But the Sierra Club 
needs a target. So now they're going to go after the gas industry without, again, any concern for the fact that in three American states, the natural gas industry is the main industry that keeps people going. But I think, you know, what you're saying now is obviously a critique of the way that the world was run, particularly after the end of the Cold War until kind of 2008 or so, when you had uh, a an untrammeled trend towards globalization and a celebration of Davos Man. But Davos Man has looked pretty miserable the last few years, the last five or six years, um, almost a decade, actually, of, of, of misery for Davos Man. Yeah, they've taken a few knocks. But in fact, at the present moment, the U.S. steel industry is exposed to the arrival of uh, huge amounts of overproduced, if we can call it that, Chinese steel. And there is a lot of resistance to the fact that the Trump administration wants to limit this inflow. And on the other hand, while the, the globalization side of uh, Davos Man is not doing too well, uh, the environmentalism is absolutely exploded. And the case in point was the fact that the moment Obama killed off or tried to kill off the coal industry, because these decrees have all been revoked now, Immediately, they want to shut down the natural gas industry, even though American natural gas could seriously reduce uh, worldwide environmental damage from coal burning by, in fact, supplying natural gas to East Asia. But the Sierra Club would oppose any export of U.S. natural gas because what they believe is there should be nothing. What people should be doing is they should be using solar power uh, with, of course, huge subsidies. And again... This is runaway elitism. I mean, elitism, because you, you enter talking environment, which we all agree, and you come out saying that, in fact, the federal government should take money from all Americans uh, whose average household income is about $35,000 a year to give it to the Tesla company, which has received more than a billion dollars in order to make automobiles for people, Sierra Club members, automobiles that cost $65,000. So this is, again, hijacking of liberalism. Maybe we can take these two things separately, but I think what you seem to be um, pointing towards is how that sort of neoliberal um, world government post-Cold War political project is now being challenged both domestically in the West by the rise of Trump and new political movements in different places, and then also internationally because... Not everybody actually ended up living the dreams of Davos Man. You talked a lot about the Chinese government and how it has a different model of capitalism from from uh, certainly the ideal in 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 European and in uh, and in the United States of America. But the other thing which you you know um, have written a lot about very eloquently for for a long time is this idea of geoeconomics, which in a way you were one of the first people to. Um, raised doubts about some of the the ideologies of Davos man you said that it's not that trade that war is giving way to commerce but you talked in in your original article about how we were going to see the um the grammar of 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 commerce but the logic of war and that the economics were going to be about zero-sum competition between countries rather than simply about you know, creating, maximizing profits for shareholders or or doing other kinds of things. I mean, to what extent do you think that the the economic order is is, uh, becoming much more instrumentalized and uh, more of a a kind of 
normal arena for geopolitical competition between countries as opposed to something which ran according to a different logic which was less about national uh, interests and more about the interests of consumers and companies and 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 sort of transnational uh, bodies well geopolitics is a global phenomenon geopolitics has always been a global phenomenon in the sense that everybody always participated in great empires and tiny tribes were playing the same game throughout history geoeconomics is different because geoeconomics implies that you have a state that is structured to actually enter the world arena and use the grammar of commerce, that is commercial methods, in order to seize territory, which is not geographic territory, but the control of certain industries. And geoeconomics is fundamentally different from geopolitics because everybody does geopolitics. But only some countries do geoeconomics, and even fewer of them do it seriously. I mean, take, for example, France and Italy. In Italy, in recent years, there's been a transfer of control of the largest companies, which is um, Telecom Italy, the national telecom provider, uh, taken over, in effect, by a core group of French shareholders who are acting with the support of the overall French system, uh, which is still a very dirigent system with a lot of state influence everywhere, including in ostensibly private banks and so on. Uh, the main Italian financial entity, Assicurazioni Generali, the biggest insurance company, which is a giant enterprise, is also being taken over by a core group of French shareholders. But if the Italians were to go to France and try take try, a group of Italian um, investors attempted to take hold of, of Credit Lyonnais or something of the sort, there's no way that they will be allowed to do it. In other words, France pursues geoeconomics aggressively. The Italian state does not. The Italian governments don't know. Don't know. That's not because the Italians don't have the same instincts. They do. But the fact is that the Italian government system is easily corrupted. And the Italian large banks are easily corrupted. You know, therefore, the Italian state cannot practice geoeconomics and safeguard anything um, that it might wish to safeguard. China, of course, it, for China, geoeconomics is even more important than geopolitics. And, for example, the current steel problem is due to the fact that China's internal equilibrium required the continued expansion of steel production as a way of, you know, employment generation and everything else of it. And even beyond, even when the Chinese fully realized that internal demand for the steel could not possibly be sufficient to absorb it all, they continued to fund, encourage, support the expansion of steel production, just calculating that they would ship it worldwide and never mind steel producers anywhere else. They'll just have to shrink to accommodate the Chinese steel, which, of course, is sold at a very low price because the steel producing companies are not seriously supposed to be profitable at all. Yeah, but what we're seeing is more more rather than less geoeconomics. I mean, you know, China obviously is now uh, a huge economy and has mechanisms like the One Belt, One Road project to, to uh, make geoeconomic competition um, more easy and more global from a Chinese perspective. And then you have, you know, if you look at the other great powers, 
whether it's Russia or Turkey or um, Modi's India, they're all um, countries that are more interested in geoeconomic competition where Davos man isn't really in charge anymore. Yes, quite so. Um, I mean, I wouldn't put Turkey as, as an important country. Tur- Turkey is becoming less important by the day with the emigration of smart Turks and smart Turkish money. But it is true, yes. I mean, these, and again, there are big differences. I mean, first of all, within China, from a fairly early stage, actually, there have always been large sphere allowed for real free markets. The Chinese government does not uh, intervene. The Chinese government did not carry out blockades against imports the way that the Republic of Korea government did. Even though Korea was nestled in the Western world, protected by the United States, it was relentless in using customs house conspiracies still does today to prevent imports entering Korea at any cost. The Chinese, on the contrary, were very open. They were at a fairly early stage, even when they the market wasn't that rich, and they, they allow large spheres where you can come in and, and, and uh, they allow imports and allow even foreign companies to operate uh, important uh, activities all over China. But they have their preferred industries, their things they're focused on, those they want to relentlessly advance at any cost. And because of the magnitude of China, this is very important. Yes, all of this is not Davos math, except for the fact that you will recall that Xi Jinping actually went to Davos when Trump did not go. Trump stayed away because for him, Davos is nemesis. So Xi Jinping shows up and says, I will be doing the Davos thing, free markets and everything else. It was a pity that a few weeks later, he led the boycott of South Korean private company because of opposition to the South Korean ballistic missile system. Mr. Xi Jinping in Davos evidently gave way to another Xi Jinping about three months later. In other words, he didn't really mean it. But all of this is true. However, the problem today is not really on that front at all, but a different front. And that is the subversion of liberalism by people who take hyper-liberal stances without regard to the consequences of the mass of their fellow citizens. For example, out in Silicon Valley, all the great leaders, uh, the Facebook guy, the Google guy, the, the guy for this guy and the guy for that guy, are all huge advocates of immigration. They are liberal figures. In the age of Trump, there stand these Silicon Valley great liberals with their welcoming open arms. Then you go there in Silicon Valley and you see that they couldn't live for a day without their you know, Chinese cooks and their Filipino valets they're Mexican gardeners, and of course, lots and lots of cheap Indian programmers to be allowed in and so on. In other words, the, they have their open arms, welcome, let's have free immigration, everything else, because indeed, they are the direct beneficiaries of it on a huge scale. And they want to have, and without any concern for the fact that where the less accomplished and, let's say, serviceable immigrants are not going to go live next door to their $172 million houses in Palo Alto, but they're going to go and live next door to Mr. and Mrs. Smith in Minneapolis or somewhere like that. And for them, immigration is not such a delightful thing. So you you have the same kind of liberal posturing by people who are actually advocating things that are very illiberal consequences. And how, I mean, you talking about Silicon Valley, migration, the internet, how do these 
things change the way that strategy is done and the way that geoeconomics is done? Because when you wrote your original piece on geoeconomics, the structure of the economy was very different. It was mainly about uh, you know, goods and manufacturing, um, you know, services, financial services were not what they are today, but the internet was, 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 you know, was barely like a year or two old when you, when you wrote that original article. Yes. Well, definitely I was thinking in terms of very much old economy, but fortunately, if it's really strategy, it's always universal and it's always transcendental. And it turns out that the advent of, uh, these uh, communication technologies, uh, these uh, social media, all these new way of communicating, this is what it's about. I mean, nobody in Silicon Valley makes any, any food or clothing or even vehicles as yet. What they're making is communication devices and everything else. They have, of course, a very important uh, geopolitical role. And you have governments like the US government, the British government, and other governments of this sort, whose stance is liberal in regard to communications and intercommunication and social media. In other words, they will allow uh, everything that can be allowed. Uh, they make a big fuss about pedophilia. because Why? Because they've now created the one exception to the rule that every form of communications is great. Now, this obviously favors all the less authoritarian governments in the world. And this favors the authoritarian governments. And it is wonderful to be able to, to take a fine liberal stance and to be in favor of freedom of communication when it is something that the, your own society can absorb without any problems, and, but which is absolute poison for the authoritarians and the totalitarians of this world. So um, if we kind of look at how all these different trends that you've been describing fit together, I mean, what kind of order do you see um, emerging out of all of this? Do you think it is a sort of rebalancing of, a, of an order where states are a bit more determined to take control of their own affairs and, and maybe just a sort of course correction from some of the things that happened in the 90s to a world that looks more like the world of, you know, the after, the, you know, the 1970s, which is kind of where you started, or is it a different kind of world that's being built? Well, we're going to see now, because it all depends on the political choices that are made. If there is a return to a proper concern for the welfare of the majority of society and a willingness to protect them from the coldest winds of international trade, not protect them for a lifetime or two lifetimes or three, but to protect them during the transition years. If there is a proper concern for the welfare of people uh, who have to live today by day, in order to, and therefore there is a restraint on environmental extremism when it, it results in the destruction of the entire way of life of significant population groups, if these things now become rolled into normal politics, if, in other words, Trump-like politics become normal, then you, what you will get will be a recovery of the fundamental liberal order by correcting this drift into extremism, which undermined its very basis. And we go back to John Stuart Mill, uh, which is freedom for everything all the time and openness and everything else, with a proper safeguard when you have 
brutal impacts on your population. If to the extent that you have leaders of this sort emerging, the liberal order gets restored. If, on the other hand, people follow the siren call of people like the Pope in Rome, whose concept is that Italy should open its borders to the entire, all of West Africa and interfere not at all with the inflow and accept the fact that Italy would become an African country. People like the Pope are inhibiting the Italian government from responding to it. The Italians will not be part of this and they will go down. They'll go down in flames and Italy will be taken over by simple-minded nativists. So you think that Donald Trump under your definition, therefore, is, a, is actually a defender rather than the enemy-in-chief of the liberal international order. Now, he is absolutely the defender because by putting restraints on environmental extremism, extremism by putting restraints on uh, sort of especially powerful economic impacts from without, especially things that are even driven by state policy in foreign countries, what he's doing is enabling people to have a moderate existence. And a moderate existence leads to moderate politics. If, on the other hand, he were to fail, which he might fail, then what you're going to get will, will be something much more, much stronger than Trump, something much more extreme than Trump. In fact, the people who are now uh, praying every day for the impeachment of Donald Trump don't seem to realize that he'll be replaced not by Hillary Clinton, or Obama, but he replaced by Pence. Pence, who is uh, the fellow who doesn't make mistakes and whose publicly statement position is that he's a Christian first, then an American, then a Republican. So these people who are bringing down Trump would get somebody who is altogether more severe than Trump. And that is quite normal around the place. Mac- Macron in France, uh, did not offer a soft liberal alternative to win Le Pen, but offered a dynamic dirigism of his own. If we get Macron politics, things are going to evolve in a positive direction. If, on the other hand, the uh, extremism of people of the Pope, the extremism of the ultra-liberals who are standing there saying, we should not control immigration at all, and we shouldn't control disruptive imports at all, if these people prevail, then, of course, we're going to have a collapse of the liberal order. Well, it's good to see you haven't lost your ability to challenge the conventional wisdom. Um, It's been um, really interesting talking to you. Uh, So I'd like to end by asking you two kind of final questions. One question I'm asking all the guests on this thing, which is uh, to complete the sentence, the liberal order is dot, dot, dot. The liberal order... um, can still be re- restored. And then the second uh, thing is to give people some pointers to things that they can read if they want to pursue these themes um, at greater length. Um, feel free to mention some of your own books and publications. We've already had a few which you mentioned earlier, which we'll put up on the website. But are there other articles which, or books which you think that uh, help, would help people get to grips with these big topics? Well, I think that the literature uh, on economic inequality, um, you see, my own books were very well published by Simon and Schuster, both of them very well. They were translated in many languages, and they were even well-reviewed and had zero impact, even though my message was so simple. 
And I greatly welcome the fact that Piketty's uh, book did attract the correct attention. Namely, we are seeing here a phenomenon of mass impoverishment. How come under supposed liberal order we have mass impoverishment in advanced societies? And then you start noticing things like the systematic transfer of money from everybody in wealthy societies, but mostly the less affluent, to the most affluent people in developing societies. When money goes from the United States, kingdom to the Congo. It doesn't go to the poor of Congo. Never. It goes to the richest people in the Congo because that, that's, the NGOs are plugged into the whole system. So uh, what I haven't yet seen is the takedown book, the takedown on the nefarious influence of this plague of NGOs that go around misrepresenting liberalism and doing everything, including importing immigrants into Italy at the present moment. Well, I'm sure you will write it before too long. It's been very interesting talking to you. Um, this brings us to the end of a great discussion from Edward Lutback, myself, Mark Leonard. It's goodbye for now. The researcher of VCFR's podcast is Archie Hall and our editor is Pauline Guimin. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please do tell people about it through social media. And even more importantly, write a review of the podcast on iTunes. In order to encourage you to do this, we have decided to create a special commemorative mug for the End of the World series. We'll be tweeting out links to it on our Twitter feed at ECFR. And if you write a review, we will, even if it's bad, we will send you an End of the World mug to your address. So please write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu with a link to your review and an address to send the mug to and you will have something which will make you the envy of your family and friends and will hopefully enjoy thinking about the podcast uh, every time you have a coffee in the morning. We would like to thank the Finnish Ministry of Foreign Affairs for kindly supporting the research that went into this podcast.